Hey folks, it's Mark here. To communicate some grave news, uh, we are flat broke. <laughs> uh, and, you know, for the past, fucking, I don't know, 81 weeks, if not more, probably more, um, we've been asking you guys if you could fling some money our way and we, are very, we have some people who are very kind and, and do donate money to us every month through a current subscription. Some for as little as one pound and hey man, every single bit helps. But it's getting really hard for us to sustain this podcast um, because let's be honest, all the shit you need to do to make this podcast work isn't particularly cheap. And when I say it's not particularly cheap, I just mean it's not free. It's not expensive, don't get me wrong, but we do need a little bit of financial support from you guys, so every little does indeed help. If you go to www.unsungpod.net for slash donate, you can give us any amount of money on a recurring basis and a one-off basis. If you've done so before, um, we're not going to say do it again, because, hey, I mean, doing it once is just enough. But if you haven't donated and this hasn't made you feel bad, then you definitely should feel bad. Just go and give us some money. I think it's, it's kind of interesting as well. We've got a couple of listeners who have basically paid all of our internet costs for a year, and then we've got like ninety nine point six percent of like everybody that doesn't pay at all. If you guys would just throw in like a pound an mm-hmm. episode that you like, it would make a world of difference. It would also also take the burden off the folks that are actually chipping in in a really big way because it's amazing of them to do that. Like it totally. Is a little bit overwhelming when we get when we see that, yeah. Totally. Um, and it'd be lovely to just spread that a bit more evenly. Mm-hmm. Seen as socialism is the the drip down effect does not work in podcasting. Does not. Nor yeah. does it work in general economics. And the alternative is either we stop doing this, which we don't want to do, or we start putting in adverts, which we also don't really want to do. Yeah, we've had some offers of adverts, and it's yeah. So. Any little, like I said, helps. Uh, like I said, it takes the burden off of other people who donate. And yeah, we don't really, we don't really mean to make you feel bad, but we do need some help, guys. So please, thank you. Sad, sad cash call. Help Hey guys, the world hasn't ended yet. How great is that? How did, how did you like that from the intro? Oh my god. <laughs> See what we're going to do to you if you don't cough up? <laughs> yeah, no. We're going to front load the misery. Yeah, front load the misery. We're doing a Boris mess. Johnson is Prime Minister. Uh, Donald Trump still appears to be President. Europe's on fire. <laughs> Europe is literally on fire. And we have no money. We're living in hell, basically, aren't we? I think it's the it's alternate a, it's a, timeline. Yeah, it's just a strange week. Yeah, it's yeah. a very odd week. I mean, it's been a strange series of weeks and mm. months and years. And years. <laughs> <laughs> but it was definitely... Decades a, even. <laughs> it was like a, a gently bizarre week because everything's happened incrementally. Mm-hmm. It's like if someone was trying to shove a traffic cone up your ass. Yeah. It's like the, the big bit at the bottom went in today, but obviously we had months and months and months of the cone itself yeah. being slowly worked up <laughs> yeah, there. Slowly so you was, inside you. Yeah. <laughs> it was a little bit of a shock when that big flap bottom bit of the, the cone finally popped up inside us. You didn't have, it wasn't like it just got... I mean, even the very top of a traffic cone is beyond what is expected of a colon. I think that was already, <laughs> that was already in when we started the podcast. We probably arrived for that first episode with the, the, the tip of the traffic cone, maybe even up to that little helmet lip thing that they all have. Yeah. That makes them easy to pick up and throw. Uh, or where. 
As some people put tend on top to. Of statues. Yeah, exactly. You've never been to Glasgow. Yeah. Very famously, is it Duke of Wellington? Yep. Yes, it is. Yeah, Duke of Wellington. the Glasgow Museum of Modern Art. Yep, Gallery of Modern Art at the Goma. Uh, always has a traffic cone uh, on his head, and if it gets removed, it gets replaced uh, yep. immediately. There's also a brand new uh, statue of Charles Rennie Macintosh down in Finiston. Which has it on his head as and well. And it took uh, three days before a traffic cone was put on his head See, as well. I like that, but it works better with the Duke of Wellington because it's a kind of mark of irreverence towards, you know, the Empire and England and mm-hmm. Westminster and that yeah. kind of thing. Which Whereas I, which we... Charlie, he's, he was, yeah, we try to mark our irreverence by burning down his buildings normally. <laughs> <laughs> well, not so much burning them down, but certainly failing to implement proper fire safety regulations. Twice? Twice, Twice. in a row? <laughs> <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> Um, it's uh, interesting you mentioned like this. It's like slowly been coming on. I started watching. If you guys heard of Years and Years, the BBC yeah program, watched yeah, all of it. Just started watching it last night. Watched the first episodes, man, and it's the same. Like it's incremental on that too. Like it just happens slowly. As a Scooby Doo ending, they pull off his mask. Like oh, I yeah. can't believe it was you. It was him, you oh, oh, long fuck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And Emma Thompson's like, I would have gotten away with it if it yeah. wasn't a few pesky kids. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it, like that Like it's a, a, Obviously the whole point Of when Russell T Davis Wrote it Was to be, kind of be as true To life as possible And it does kind of Feel like that Maybe I'm just feeling Pessimistic It's I just good it's, watching it, it, it gets a bit BBC um, But you know Russell T Davis Is BBC now Because he's a Doctor Who So you know Yeah it, 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 It's got some Really really good bits But it does get a wee bit Sort of like Love joy Yeah that's <laughs> I'll a, tell you what I've been moment. watching uh, What I've been watching recently Better be Deadwood uh, It's been Jonathan Creek oh, right. uh-huh. There's nothing more BBC than that And I've Fucking love it. <laughs> um, this week I spent a fair amount of time with watching live music, mm-hmm. which mm. is sort of within the remit of this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. yeah, I've seen a few gigs as well. Um, I saw, uh, oh God, I saw Thou after you we guys. finished the previous episode. Yep. Guys, yeah. Thou and Moloch and Cartilage. And Cartilage were by far the best band of that night, I think. Mm-hmm. I Moloch. didn't really dig Moloch at all. No. They didn't ever go above the third fret. You pointed out I, they had three corn riffs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Thou uh, The thing with Thou is they've got like Five albums but then 24 EPs And then split records and stuff like that S- And it seemed like they were Fresh back on tour and weren't quite You know tight and stuff like that And I just felt their set list was very kind of one dimensional And I know they've got a lot more there So I was a bit disappointed that's, in, Yeah in that's, that's probably the operative phrase One dimensional if, What yeah. I felt was that like people were like they were they were there to see Doom. They were there to see something loud, but they weren't particularly concerned with how good the Doom was. Mm-hmm. It's like because there's Doom and there's Doom. There's stuff that's loud and slow and heavy, and then there's stuff that's loud and slow and heavy, but really, really well done. When you you know look at some of the kind of masters of that genre, this is by definition Doom, but it's not really doing anything particularly interesting. The vocals were really monotonous. The there was a lack of dynamics in it and stuff which is interesting because like they are one of the most dynamic bands in the studio last year they released four full-length eps which all related to a different sound so they had like a grunge record they had like a paired back sort of acoustic one they had like a proper atmospheric drone record they can do all of these things and then they released their album which was really really good but then, yeah, I just, live, I was just, yeah, I was fairly bored. Didn't come across. I mean, the sound was astonishing as well. It sounded mm. amazing. So a lot of people were just getting off on the volume and the impact of the sound, and it, but the actual material was really disappointing. Then on Friday night, I went to see Flock of Seagulls, courtesy of my man Dave here. Oh, yeah, did you enjoy it? It was 
honestly one of the most tragically bad things I've <laughs> ever seen. It, it was punishingly cringe-inducing. Oh, the man. only good thing is there was a one great track in the middle of the set that I didn't actually know what it was, and it had very little singing in it, and his voice is gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, he looks like Frank Black, or he looks like the third Mitchell brother now, mm-hmm. and yeah. sounds like it as well. Like, his singing is just croaky, just wait, oh, it's just fucked. Um... Uh, but they did pull it out of the fire a little bit with a couple of killer songs at the end, including Iran, which was possibly good and just for nostalgic value, a good buzz. Uh, you had a busy weekend. You were at the doing the Rabbit Hole Festival. Were doing you the Rabbit Hole Festival. Yeah, it was uh, pretty good. I was DJing on Friday night. Then I slept in a car and I drove home That's and right, I DJed yeah. in Glasgow. Yeah, you made like a cameo appearance at a comedy show. Yeah. I'm like, what the fuck's that? Oh, yeah. yeah, and then I went back up on Sunday. Oh, yeah, I saw James Acaster as well. Yeah. Uh, who's funny. He got very annoyed with a drunk Glasgow audience, even though 99% of them were really into it. What did they expect? <laughs> and then I uh, went back up to doing the rabbit hole. I saw Battles, saw Blank Mass, and I got my body painted white. And I heard about this. You were on stage I was, with free love. I was uh, flying a flag for them because they needed somebody to fly a huge flag and go into the crowd with them. Uh, so that was fun. I had a busy weekend. <laughs> sounds I'm it, yeah. only just recovered now. Um, Monday night I went and saw The Body. Did you so, go? I, did you I had, go? A, no, I had practice, a ticket. So. Uh, I had a ticket for The Body and then didn't go because I was asleep. Uh, it was, without a doubt, one of the loudest shows I've seen in yeah. the last decade. It was thunderously loud as they tend um, to be yeah. uh, it started I think quite poorly and then they, they don't play very long the whole gig was done by like quarter to ten it was ridiculous you could understand people feeling a little short changed with that I know that's their thing though but by the fourth tune something changed in the fourth tune just in terms of the material they were doing and it actually got really good mm-hmm. um, I, so I was I was bracing myself for another disappointing night because that was a run of a few shows that kind of were a bit crap to be honest but no, they kind of pulled it out the fire uh, and it picked up. So yeah, that was decent. There's a few more on the horizon that I'm looking forward to. But but I guess given the week that was going on in the world, fucking Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister, I mean, it doesn't get much more stupid and fucking surreal than that. So I don't know why I hoped I'll, anything I'll, was going to be good this week at all. There's nothing yeah. doomier than reality. But I mean, wow. I, for people outside the country, they're maybe thinking, oh, people have leaders they don't like and stuff. It's like, yeah, but you very rarely have a leader that you actually can't understand how such a balloon would it just how did how did we get to this point? And it's like the Trump thing. You know, when people say he's like the British Trump, the the most like Trump thing is the fact of the incredulity that somebody like that gets mm-hmm. to any high office because he's just a fucking nugget. <laughs> yeah. He's he's not like uh you can see how you know, hey, some, Theresa some, May. I, hate, I couldn't stand Theresa May, but she was like a she was a politician. Politician. You can see how a lot of right wing politicians get into power because they have played the game, yeah, and they've done politics, and you know they're professional politicians and they have beliefs that I might not agree with, but at least they have fucking beliefs. Whereas the two fucking buffoons at the head of the UK and the US right now, they're not politicians; they're caricatures. Yeah, they are, and they are so out of they just don't seem real yeah and like i think 10 years ago nobody would have believed you when you said either of them would be in office you know what it reminds me of right see if you tried to play a game of football soccer football with a rugby ball (laughs) 
And every so often, you know, you, you kick the ball in the air and you expect it to land and bounce one way. Because it fucking shouldn't be there, it lands and bounces in a direction that makes no fucking sense at all and then bounces in another direction. And so nobody can actually track it mm-hmm. because it's bouncing left, right, left, right, left, right. Just the whole thing becomes unworkable and unpredictable. And I think that's the fucking Trump and Boris Johnson effect. It's like in a simple decision, you actually don't know what way this fucking idiot is going to land. Yeah. Even in what seems like a fairly basic thing. Just look at last week's fucking racist tweets and the fact they came out and redoubled his efforts on it. And Johnson, the fucking things, even just about Scotland. Yeah. We should be putting ghettos and systematically exterminated and fuck. Who knows, man? I mean, it's... It it gets sillier and sillier. And the the weird thing is we started a music podcast and have ended up sort of documenting the decline of Western civilization <laughs> in the process. Uh, Mark, you've been home from your trip of a lifetime mm-hmm. for a week and a half. Uh, any update on reality? How, yeah. how are you living it? I like that how Mark's now in the post-trip of a lifetime <laughs> yeah, year of his life where everything's down, <laughs> downhill yeah. from here, mate. It's spearmint polo shirts for the rest of your fucking life. The horror continues apace, what can I say? Like, <laughs> there's nothing more to add apart from the fact that I don't really understand what's going on either and I don't like it. <laughs> Make it stop. <laughs> fairly, fairly honest assessment. <laughs> Make uh, it stop. So you chose this uh, week's record. To express the frustration and rage uh, within all of us. Yeah, mm. it's an mm. angry record. It is. It's a witness by modern life as war. Modern Life is War mm-hmm. There's a fucking fitting title Yeah I know Only getting more relevant <laughs> never, I never heard of this title Does it Because Modern Life is always I guess It's it, it a guess always war like mm-hmm. One of the points I was going to make about You know Melodic hardcore in general Is that it's quite uh, Melodramatic But genuinely That name Has become more relevant Yeah mm-hmm. I think it's not even like A massively political band They're Like Jeffrey in particular Is a lyricist And a vocalist Is much more He likes to comment on Like Living and working class life and you know trying to make ends meet and all that kind of stuff um, and coming from a really fucking shitty small town called Marshalltown, Ohio eh, Iowa, sorry um, but the reason I picked this record is because Can I just say though yeah. what he wouldn't have like back in like you know this came out in 2005 Yeah, yeah So then you know go a few Bush A few years later Yeah, Bush but then you've got three years later they took a hiatus in 2008 mm. probably because by the time Obama came in you were like well modern life's a pain in the arse mm. Yeah <laughs> You know a wee bit later like oh, modern, modern life's not ideal Modern life's Getting a wee bit annoying Modern life's uh, I don't like the way this is going Until now yeah. He's like We need to reform the, the band guys Because yeah. fucking modern life is war yeah, so we'll, I'll come back to that point In a minute um, But the one reason I picked this record Is because Modern hardcore Has grown quite a lot Over the past 15 years But this record is I think this band are really Unsung Because They've influenced a lot of bands Which have went on to do Quite Not, not huge things But you know, become reasonably famous in, in that kind of scene. Uh, and I seen Modern Life is War a few years ago and they put the bottom four of Classic Grand, which holds like, how many does that hold? That's crazy, yeah. Yeah, 250 maybe? Yeah, it was must have been like less four, than... Four, four and a half people? Less than 100 people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. It was less than 100 people there and they were on the 10th anniversary tour for this record. Mm-hmm. Um, and this record, along with other records that came out around about the same time, which we'll talk about in a second kind of defined the sound which a lot of kids have like have did latch onto and have latched onto and continue to you know exploit and it really comes from here i think so i thought this was like a good a, a sort of fitting one for the podcast because it's an unsung record by 
well, one unsung band, the record itself is their most sung record, but the band itself I don't think get enough credit for, you know, what they started. Yeah, I mean, underrecognised bands are a perfect fit, just as much as underrecognised records by mm. big bands. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's not a genre that I ever got into, and it's one that a lot of my friends did, and it was I was always like, you know, coming into close contact with, and I was quite yeah. often going to gigs, and there'd be a band like this. We, we were similar, I think. We were on yeah. the periphery of it, but it, it, it was a genre that took itself so fucking seriously that I could never fully take it seriously. Yeah, that's but what I think always put it off for me was how earnest it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you were saying about how good this record is. I noticed that Sputnik Music um, called Witness the possibly the greatest hardcore album of all time. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'd go that far, but probably the greatest melodic hardcore record of all time, for sure. It was in the early 2000s when melodic hardcore kind of branched off in two different directions, like bands like Pennywise and Bad Religion and stuff and Descendants were arguably doing melodic hardcore in the 90s. And I suppose a lot of Fat Wreck were signing a lot of bands which sounded a bit like, you know, Pennywise and Bad Religion. Yeah, but their, their kind of branch of it, that kind of comes from Descendants sort of yeah. from territory, doesn't it? Whereas there's that kind of, and there was like bands like Seven Seconds. And uh, leftover crack to a certain extent, yeah, stuff like that. The Faith, Dagnasty, Dagnasty, big one, yeah, yep. Gorilla mm-hmm. Biscuits as well. Gorilla Biscuits, case. 80s band, yeah, really. Yeah. Anything Water Street Falls really has been involved in to some degree, it kind of falls into this kind so of thing. That was more of a like bad religion, that kind of descendants branch was like more of a kind of like almost like a, a nasty or pop punk thing. It's like it's like yeah. it's, it's tuneful, it's singy, whereas this was like more akin to the hardcore, hardcore, like the kind of proper, proper stuff, but just with like more yeah. tuneful riffs. I noticed that mm-hmm. one of the definitive aspects of it was not that it's like massively singy because mm-hmm. it's often not massively singy but it's just that there's more melody within the guitar lines as mm-hmm. well it's not the melody doesn't have a, have to apply to some boy like going into an emo but it, yeah. it, it can apply to just the more melody within mm-hmm. the instrumentation as well well that's what i was that's what i was going to get so there were bands like that who were instrumental in kind of making making kind of angry pop punk and making it heavier and heavier so then you start to get bands like 88 uh, fingers louis who then became Rise Against, you get bands like yeah, Kid Dynamite. Yeah, Kid Dynamite is like a kind of slightly snottier version. You know yeah. what I mean? It's got mm-hmm. that kind of much more oy-oy kind of yeah. p- like punk mm-hmm. rock sort of take on, but, the, on, on the genre but then some of these bands started to listen were also big fans of hardcore like Bane and H2O and stuff like that you yeah, know and Bane, sick of it all and stuff Bane featured was it Aaron what's his name Bedard yeah is that his, his name yeah. the guy that Alan Gilbeck he wasn't Converge Yeah, yeah, same one. Yeah. So, um, 
bands who were into that kind of punk thing started to, when they started listening to Project Carco, they went down the Rise Against route and right, I, I, I loved the first two Rise Against records. The first kind of four are quite good, but I love the first two. And they're now basically an echo-back of fucking hard rock, like punk. Like they're just such a fucking middle of the road band now, it's actually <laughs> terrifying. Already went down this kind of comeback kid route. So comeback kids are were kind of foundational in taking like that snotty punk element of it and combining it wholesale with a hardcore. Whereas Well, Comeback Kid were peers of these guys, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, definitely. They toured. Did Comeback Kid not do a tour with these guys and Bane at mm-hmm. one point? Is it yeah. not like some kind of package tour or yeah. something? Yeah. Bane broke up a couple uh, last year, maybe the year before. Um, but they are foundational to this whole kind of scene. But they've been, they've been, they were going for years. But I suppose the new progenitor of this sound is probably sick of it all. Go back to the 90s. Yeah, but they are they're, they're much more hardcore. Mm-hmm. They're like less on the melody, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, there was a big explosion of it though in the 90s, because one that I always remember my friends really being into was Ignite. Yeah, I love Ignite, man. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the kind of early 90s, and they're like a lot chunkier. They're yeah, they're like, Pennywise, more Pennywise, for sure. Yeah, but I think they're also like a bit riffier. Pennywise did have that kind of vocal bad religion thing sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and, and Ignite were just that wee bit more aggressive. Another one was H2O. Yeah, I mentioned them earlier on. Yeah, yeah mid-90s, man. They, Still going. You mm-hmm. can really hear the evolution of the, the genre within that band, I think. Yeah. Um, Avail. Avail, were, yeah. yeah. They were another example that kind of came up. And um, like you said, Strike Anywhere and Rise Against being like fucking two of the biggest, most obvious reference points. Well, Strike Anywhere, they're, they don't really tour much anymore. I don't even know what they're doing, but they're, they're compared to Rise Against, they're definitely a period of them. They're fucking tiny, man. Like, uh, i seen, I seen, uh, I seen Strike Anywhere and a Wilhelm Scream uh, supporting uh, Pennywise and when Pennywise played the ABC you know it's the kind of size of those bands and Strikin' were on first I fucking love Strikin' were probably one of my favourite bands to be honest um, I don't listen to them much anymore but they're also kind of in that that vibe but these bands obviously took the kind of old school hardcore bands like Modern Life is War obviously took the old school hardcore and combined it with emo like 90s emo yeah you know, because you can. That's oh, definitely. A, a lot of that comes from there, and they kind of paved the way for bands like Tushy Amore and stuff as well. Yeah, Tushy Amore, Defeated, La Dispute, bands that all like a lot of a lot of bands from Britain as well, like Heights, Dead Swans, from Glasgow, Departures, you know, mm-hmm. um, that kind of stuff.
And a lot of those bands have kind of a lot of those bands have either broken up or they've either went more emo, like like Departures have or like Dispute. It was like a really know. big thing in Britain. Like I remember, like I always associated this sound with Dundee. Well, the fight back were from Dundee, who then became Departures. So right. that's that's kind of where it comes yeah, from. There yeah, there was a, there was a big. Uh, an, an excellent DIY scene in Dundee after that kind of post-hardcore thing that we spoke about in the Dundee mixtape. Mm-hmm. Um, I always thought of it as like Telecaster hardcore. Totally is, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. they'd all have Telecasters through Fenders and like try and get that big, huge open chord sound. And more, te- more textury hardcore. Yeah, it's rather more than... Big, yeah. More textured guitar sound rather than big riffs. The psychology of it's really interesting. I think we were kind of talking about like... Uh, I mean I've been talking about the band Idols quite a bit recently obviously and I kind of feel like there's a kind of woke proneness to that there's mm-hmm. like this subculture of young men who used to have these outlets that you didn't really have to think too hard about whether it was hard rock or new metal or whether it was punk rock or you, you know you were just into it and you didn't think too much about the political correctness of it and now you've got this this good development in terms of people being more conscious of the context and the messaging and how it comes across and is the environment welcoming to women and members of LGBTQ plus communities and stuff and that's great like a genuinely very very positive development because it was always off putting at hardcore shows the sheer fucking sausage fest Mm -hmm. of it but I think it's interesting the psychology of things like melodic hardcore because there's a need to vent these really primal urges but also want to be doing it in a way that's kind of like what's the phrase like it's um like i was trying to use the phrase woke bronus Mm -hmm. like you're still a bro you're still doing your manly bit and you're fucking doing this and you're like Mm -hmm. pointing at the sky and shouting and singing but the whole thing is done within this kind of uh, context and sort of understanding that you're all very on message with like things that are much more progressive and like, I feel like with mo- like m- melodic hardcore and then onwards into emo there was that very much like right we're men but we have to get in touch with our emotions mm-hmm. and it also it kind of led to this weird thing that it, it went from being just dramatic to becoming melodramatic mm-hmm. you know you got it just kind of it's almost like we got really swept up in this like connecting to the emotional content of things to try and underplay the machismo of it mm-hmm. and then you ended up with this like era of really fucking overwrought angsty emotional hardcore with people breaking into these high kind of the kind of like Daryl Palumbo mm-hmm. type like over milked emotion of it and it, like I was saying earlier on it, that stuff it was so hard to take it seriously and even if musically at times it kind of kicked ass you're just like fuck's sake though this is like this is really like cringe inducing mm-hmm. you know and I feel like this is just on the cusp of that yeah it, I mean it, it's, it's, I think it's I think in some ways it's a kickback against that because that's the big that was the big sound that they really against at the time it's like well this is fucking this is fake to a degree because it's like all performative whereas this this is obviously quite sincere. Um, but Too it ne- sincere. It never really feels as though they're like they're like trying to fucking be anything other than themselves. I think like, Dave used the word like over earnest or mm-hmm. the phrase over earnestness, and I think that's definitely true. Um, as much as I really like some of the music, I'm very aware of the fact that it's a bit of an eye roll, you know. And I can imagine f- female friends of mine are still, even though this is much more modern and evolved, are still quite alienated by the kind of like, oh god, all right, I get it, you're a sensitive guy. It feels quite put on, man. Like I, I really, I still struggle getting it. And so, obviously, with this, I've really engaged with it. Like I really wanted to hear it and really try and appreciate it. And I do think some of the instrumentation is great. But I still, yeah, I just have a real problem getting past. It's because you have no emotions, Chris. Maybe it is. <laughs> Maybe it is because you're dead inside. I think it's interesting. This, 
that you've got the reaction of someone that likes a lot of emo stuff, you know, from the nineties and all that. Yeah, like, but I'm kind of choosy about how how overwrought that is. Mm-hmm. I, I do struggle with a lot of it. Like some of it is just way too fucking cheeseball and way too contrived. Um, I'm really picky about that. I think like Far is one of the most emo bands I like, and even then, at times, some of my least favorite ones were ones where I think they overegged the pudding a little bit. I mean, yeah, it's because your favorite true. emotion is that. Uh, Cynicism So <laughs> Like I like my emo To be cynical And nihilistic My favourite emotion Is schadenfreude So this This came out at the same time As all our records uh, Which were all Just as influential Particularly Half Heart Songs to Scream at the Sun Which is What I might have picked If I didn't pick this Which I might still pick At some point By um, him By Half Heart Have heart, mm-hmm. yeah. They just they just did a, a tour, a reform tour because they, they they broke up like fucking ten years ago, fifteen years ago, something like that. And I, I don't know why they got back together because they played tiny rooms. It was really weird. Um, but yeah, I think maybe maybe it was fan of the first songs to sing at the sun, songs to scream at the sun. But that's also foundation foundational text in this kind of hardcore. Should we say? And those comeback kids as well. Um, it was also Runner by Wilhelm Street Scream was this year as well, wasn't it? Two thousand and five, um, I think. No, so, that would that would have been mute print. Oh, really? Maybe. I can't remember. I mean, we obviously uh, covered Wilhelm Scream mm. with uh, Career Suicide, which yeah. was a couple of years later. But mm. the band, uh, talking of which, by the way, just jog my memory. The band Runner were yeah. a band that came up as well, mm. and a lot of literature as like really notable peers. Yeah. Of these guys, you had like Verse as well, and Sinking Ships too. Thing is, Hope album. Conspiracy as well Hope, Hope Con's a great band man yeah. Cold Blue Their first album Which came out in 2003 Is, is really good um, Also the Sinking Ships record Disconnecting Is also really good uh, this is when Comeback Kid came around as well. I think uh, their second record, Wake of, uh, of the Dead, is still a great, great album. It's Christ, the, it's, Christian, it's, Christian band, certainly, which is weird. It's a really interesting genre because it is really quite narrow in its remit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's quite a narrow set of features that define it. As soon as you start doing too much, you, you inadvertently end up out with the genre and doing something else. And it does have a really loyal fan base. Like I said, like I remember being in Dundee and the guys with the Strike Anywhere and Rise Against t-shirts pointing at the ceiling, singing along with all these things, you know, really pounding their chest and stuff. And it's a dead sort of, there is a ritualistic aspect to these kind of melodic hardcore shows and hardcore shows. It's like, they don't expect anything different. Mm-hmm. It's just a ritual that they enjoy to go through. And yeah. I'm, I'm not looking down on that. I'm just saying there's something quite prescribed about the sound and quite prescribed about the conduct of it. it if you think about it this right, way, man. Like, you know what I mean? It's like the pop punk kids grew up and started listening to this. This is this is like a next gen. This is like the next stage of their life. This kind of music, you know. What I mean, that's what a lot of the people who are into this kind of music come from. That or they come from emo. Do you know what I mean, it's like so the next thing. Pop punks when you don't have any bills to pay, and melodic hardcores when you realise you got bills to pay. Yeah, exactly. Life gets harder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You start, it's, you it's start like to stop idealising the world. Yeah. Parallel to the new metal kids, then going to heavy metal, and then you know. And new metal exactly when it. you're just unemployed and living in a trailer park, so you don't have to worry about bells. Or you're and 14. Pop punk is what the mo- melodic hardcore guys do on a Friday and a Saturday night to try and pretend they're younger than they are <laughs> and pine for that year when they didn't have bills to pay. Yeah. Now I get it. Yeah. <laughs> totally get it, man. Totally get it.
And so wait a minute. So the the first two records by this band came out in Death Wish, didn't they? Yeah. Um, and then they signed it to Equal Vision from uh, Midnight in America. Yeah. For the one after this, which is Ray Capo's label, the guy from Shelter yeah. Youth of Today. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And um, produced by J. Robbins. That record. Loads of interesting stories about Ray Capo. By the way, if you've never really read about the guy, but he was like a very is uh, a Buddhist, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. And um, he, he was a guy that went on a tour with his wife in Italy, uh, including visiting a vineyard, and then was assaulted by somebody that recognised him uh, and saw him tasting wine in this like tiny little <laughs> vineyard in Italy, mm-hmm. and they they tossed the wine all down him. Um, oh, so straight-ish kids, man, fuck's sake, fucking Ray. <laughs> I take him anywhere. <laughs> uh, that was a thing for a while in the early twenty tens, man. It was all. Ian McKay had a coffee thrown on him. Yeah, yeah. Despite the fact that Ian Kevin McKay never was straight-edge, he just <laughs> sang the words in a mm-hmm. song. I mean, even Kai is functionally straight edge, he just doesn't recognise as being straight edge. Uh, he, he doesn't agree with it yeah. as a, well, he, he doesn't want to be part of any mm-hmm. sort of like, you know. Yeah, much like Jesus Christ overall. wouldn't agree with um, most of Christianity today, <laughs> Ian Mackay doesn't agree with the scene that he created. And Satan wouldn't agree with Satanism. He would not. Do you think he was, this is far too fucking nice? Yeah, what's going on? Why is there no hellfire? What's the pits and the fucking forks and shit? Like, it's like <laughs> I that version of Satan, Satanism that Alex Jones and the Republicans described, that's what I wanted. I exactly. Wanted None to- of this self-care shit. <laughs> I wanted you to kidnap children and murder animals. <laughs> Fuck's sake. You guys um, can't get it. You humans are the fucking worst. <laughs> so Mark, tell who are Modern Life is War? So Modern Life is War are a band from, uh, like I said earlier on, Marshalltown, Ohio. Iowa, you said Ohio earlier on as well. <laughs> I don't know why I keep saying Ohio, from Marshalltown, Iowa, which is a town of 26,000 people. What I find really interesting is um, how they how they come abro- how they come across this sound in a town that fucking small. Um, this record is about living in that town. Uh, Jeffrey did an EMA uh, about this. And he kind of says that although the record might seem negative, it's just like it was just his way of processing the day-to-day experience of living in a place where he didn't really know anything other than that, you know. And he still looks back in the town as being quite a good place. It's got positives and negatives, but the thing you find most most interesting about it is it was a town of, in which there was like nobody doing anything artistic, you know. So these were like very much. There's something I can certainly relate to coming from a small town. Where fuck all happens well, And it's like Comfortable And suburban But then also Boring and You know Inward Yeah it's quite a mo- It's quite a um, Quite a rural place Two, yeah. two, two points so First of all We're going to mention Marshalltown during the Nexus And Melbourne anyway okay. um, The other thing is I saw Believe it or not In a Kerrang interview And I was quite uh, Pleasantly surprised And impressed uh, Kerrang asked him a question In 2018 About What is Marshalltown Iowa like now compared to pre-Trump mm-hmm. It voted for Obama previously And now mm-hmm. it's flipped to Trump And I think in contrast to what you're saying he's, His replies were a lot more negative He was like, look That town has always been infested with racism mm-hmm. It's always had This large uh, Undercurrent Of um, suspicion And alienation All it took was somebody To make people feel comfortable Voicing the beliefs that they'd always had. And he's like, so when I see people saying it now, he's like, those people were saying it already, but they were just whispering it before, whereas now they feel comfortable sharing Yeah, but it. I think also, I read that interview as well, and I think that he, I think that stands for the whole of America. Like, that's not just Marshalltown. Well, I think it's... I don't, I don't think he's necessarily, you know, he's been asked directly a question about Marshalltown, but I think he's, it's more of a comment on 
that underlying... I'm not, uh, sure, I'm not sure about that, man, because the, the thrust of the question is why did it flip? How can a town go from voting for a black Democrat yeah, to but voting America for a white that. supremacist? That's exactly what the, the well, whole of no, America but America, did. I mean, that's, I think that's a, a gross oversimplification, man. Like, America didn't do that in terms of, like, California didn't do that, New York didn't do that, you know. Yeah, I know, Most of the major cities, even major cities in places like Texas and that didn't do that. Yeah, but um, th- this town probably went from 45 Republican to 55 Republican, so it's not like the entire town flipped and was, oh, yeah, I forgot we were all racist. No, but, I mean, it's, it's still a valid point. 25% of the Democrats that voted for Obama reportedly either voted for Donald Trump or didn't vote. Mm-hmm. That's a quarter of people, and that applies largely to places like Iowa, like the Rust Belt states. And I think that's an interesting phenomenon. Like, how does a town go from backing a black president to suddenly backing a white supremacist? I think it's a valid line of inquiry, and I don't think it applies uniformly across the states. I think a lot of the states was horrified that he got elected. And it's interesting to hear the reflections of somebody that grew up Mm. in that, not surprised. He's like, no, this has always been there. Mm. It just took somebody saying it was okay to say it. And I think that's the same in Britain. Mm. I don't think any of us were massively surprised to find that there was a festering culture of racism, especially in England. Mm. Um, I think we've lived with it our whole lives. I was like, all it took was the right preconditions to say to people, look, you don't have to be ashamed. That's just your opinion. It's mm. Opinions are fine. That's just your, you know, you've got every right to say that. And once you give people that, that, um, that permission, once people feel comfortable venting the worst aspects of their personality, then yeah, they do. They do quite quickly come to the surface. I, I, yeah, I, I but my, to my point is, if you read the rest of that answer that he said, he doesn't just throw his hometown into the, the bin and say, "Oh, it's a racist shithole." He finds positives in his place. Not that he, it's a shithole, but that yeah, that he, but he what was he's more negative about it though. He's more negative about it, but he also understands the reasons that. A lot of the people there have been left behind and he can see why it, they've turned to, you know, racism because of ignorance. Um, and, and he says that. And that's what I'm saying about, I feel like that's a point that then can be carried through the, you know, the whole of American society. I, I just, I, di- I didn't get a sense of him throwing the, the town away like you did. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think we, we kind of spoke about it just before we started recording as well. I'm just wary of like... I know if you take America as a whole, that's clearly the trend is that it's flipped from having a black president to having a white supremacist president. But I just mean, we spoke ourselves about how, you know, Trump was elected with this like, massive uh, deficit in the popular vote. And, and indeed, I was, you know, listening to a lot of people examining the figures in depth. And it looks very, very possible that in the next election, 2020, he might lose the popular vote by even more, much more, four, four and a half million, and actually win the Electoral College by more. Mm-hmm. So it'll be even more of an astonishing result based on the way it's currently shaping up. You know, we're like, oh, he's really unpopular, but he still might win the Electoral College. And that's dependent on places like Iowa, on places like North Carolina and Florida, where where it's not the whole country flipping, you know, other, like, the vast, vast, vast areas of that country, especially the major cities, cities yeah. are solidly committed to these sort of inclusive ideals. But the places that seem to flip-flop in bad circumstances are more often these rural areas. And yeah, it doesn't it doesn't throw it under the bus. But I do think it is interesting just to sort of appreciate that that country isn't uniformly in flux. The flux is happening in these areas and they're largely white areas. I mean, the the Red Amy answer that I, that I read was 2015. And he said that Mustown was a great place to live and grow up and a lot of, a lot of amazing people live there. I don't think I ever intended to mythologise it, but I did want to represent where we came from in a very vivid and specific way. I'm not as critical as it as many people are led to believe, but, you know, 
things can change. His overall point is it's a unique, a unique place and, and the working class, small town mindset and lack of art and culture really influenced me in both positive and negative ways. And also going back to the thing with, uh, you know, rural areas, like my flatmate's for Fife and he always talks about farmer Tories because it is mostly, it is mostly rural Real people who really don't have any connection with other cultures who who will then go on and vote right wing, you know. And up here at least, I mean, and, and in England case, as well. No, it's not the case in England, man. Because I mean, some of the biggest cities in England, the, the North, for example, some of those towns are hopelessly in the thralls of fucking UKIP or the Brexit parties are now known. Aye, but if you yeah, but that is a separate issue because that's that whole Labour versus you know Labour Brexit supporters. I'm j- yeah, I'm just saying. I don't think I think up here that's very uh, that that's actually weirdly true. But I think in England. You know, cities like Birmingham, which is a massive cultural melting pot, seems to also be really suffering from that proximity, that kind of cultural resentment. I don't know. Like I think, resentment. I think uh, very in the South England, where there's a lot of farmland and stuff as well, a lot of people tend to vote. Absolutely. But that, I mean, that wouldn't be enough. to, And where we don't have an electoral college system, that wouldn't be enough to really put someone in power here. I think the, the, the problem here is subtly different. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of the same kind of thought process as like ignorance is bred from a place where I guess it's foisted upon you by the media and, you know, by people who can shout the loudest, which is the case that we're living in right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of the media thing. I, I, I'm kind of sceptical about that. I'm, I'm, scared, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's something that I fully buy behind, but I mean, a lot of people are very influenced by the sun, for example, you know? Absolutely, yeah. And, and that's why you shouldn't buy it. That's one of the reasons why you shouldn't buy it. <laughs> amongst many. Yeah, one of amongst many, many. So, um... The record itself, man, um, I have to say, I, I quite like it, but I think I preferred the album after it. Okay, well, I'd like to talk about the records might, before. Yeah, but, let's yeah. talk about the, the the chronology and the other mm. records. So uh, the first record was 2006, uh, My Love My Way. Uh, 2003 2003 sorry I don't know why it's 2006 it's, it says yeah. 6 on Spotify yeah. but 2000 yeah came out the same year as Cold Blue then by Hope Con this is a much more it's a much more hardcore record as opposed to modic hardcore but there's still some hints of it there's got some cracking songs on it um, Clarity Self Preservation um, this like is a record a that my uh, cousin Ian bought because I think he'd read a review or something like that and then I copied it onto my computer mm-hmm. and then we both listened to it and we were like, oh, I don't think I like it. Mm-hmm. But that's because, well, interestingly enough, he was a pop punk kid. He was like, he f- came from NoFX and Mad Caddies. But then he ended up going down a Dillinger Escape Plan route. Yeah. Um, and I was in, you know, on my way down the Meshuggah route. <laughs> well, well documented your descent. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I, uh, to me, I remember listening to this record and... I didn't like the vocals at all. Yeah, that's, um, I was going to mention that. Like, that's one of the big things. Like, that vocal, that is one note, right? It's like a one note holler. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's either like it or you don't. There's no getting over it, really. I don't think. And then there just, for me, then there just wasn't enough, there just wasn't enough shit going on. Yeah, there's, there's, there's uh, not, like, like metal wise. Records, yeah, there's not a lot, anything going on. It's all kind of like a, like, getting hit in the face with a hammer, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's all quite blunt. Um, And then Witness, obviously, comes next. Um, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then the one you said you like, Christmas Night in America. Um, I just thought is, it was a wee bit more imaginative. I, I don't like it as much. I thought it was a bit too long. I think kind of, I don't know. Mm, okay, it didn't, yeah. grab, didn't grab me True. as much. As a, as a full album, it's maybe a bit saggy, but it, it does have some really interesting 
approaches to instrumentation. The first track in particular. Yeah, this generation's great. Yeah, yeah, it's got like a yeah, really, really innovative guitar riff based on their previous work. that and then I also like fuck the sex pistols yeah I like that it was short I but like blunt the and I like the name as yeah well. exactly <laughs> but like it had Humble Streets is great as well what, so. yeah what was interesting about this record and it ma- sort of made it stand out what w- was maybe lacking for me but I understand why what lacks on the second album doesn't matter and maybe for this whole genre why I can't get into it but you know people are it lacks Riffs and choruses, right? And I like riffs and choruses. It's got, they've got riffs, man. Well, maybe, maybe not as obvious as they're not as obvious because yeah, they've got like little nice little melodies that are going up on the guitar and stuff like that. But I wouldn't say they've got like big fucking chunky riffs. And I think like it's emotional hardcore like this or um, uh, melodic hardcore. It's more about how it's done and that overall sense of emotion and anger and that overall sound and it sounds angry and it's like rah, rah, rah. and it's about being in the moment mm. rather than the sort of takeaway memorable shit of um you know of metal or you know other genres and I, think, I, I mean a lot of it is dependent on the delivery i think like working with balu is really complimentary to them i think it, it works yeah. really well on this and the, the, and the last after one, it yeah. yeah um and i think this is also mastered by alan deshay yeah uh, west west in uh, new york um, I, th- I think the sonically it's really strong in that respect. You mean when in America or Witness? Witness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's just a, it's a good team. On yeah. It, mm-hmm. it, it kind of maximizes the material. I think there's a couple of songs that are actually a little bit weak, but they still get away with it because mm-hmm. they've got a lot of punch mm-hmm. in them. Well, it's the same same team again for Fever Fever Hunting, our last record in two thousand, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. last album two thousand thirteen. That was a comeback record because yeah. they'd split up in two thousand. Yeah, you know, the one, an interesting reflection on that hiatus. By the way, it was five years, wasn't it? Two thousand eight yeah. to twenty thirteen. A lot had happened, and that that whole genre moves so fast. And mm. so, when you're away for five years, the ground changes under you quite a bit. And coming back after five years, some folks said they felt they were a bit redundant. Yeah. It's like because things had moved on, whereas they were coming back at sort of the point where they kind of left off. Yeah, I mean that's the, th- that's the thing about this record is that I remember when it first came out, I wasn't I wasn't terribly enamoured with it, but I think time's been quite kind to it because yeah. actually uh, it still actually sounds quite it sounds very relevant now because uh, I guess there's more bands doing this than ever before, and they still do it better than anyone else. If you take time off five years off, especially in a genre like punk, which moves from trend to trend so incessantly uh, and never really seems to go backwards in the way that like pop music is big into its retro stuff and things like that it, it I don't know you can you can sound a wee bit out of time mm-hmm. I feel yeah it's just my opinion I guess but I think that I guess a lot of bands like Defeater, Tushy Amore La Dispute um, Me Without You are probably another foundational band who kind of stopped who kind of didn't stop being a band but kind of just didn't do it for a long time and then came back, have come back later, um, all kind of of this same ilk. So I guess when this record comes out, Fever Hunting comes out, um, it's right in the midst of that like boom for this kind of music. Um, you know, Defeater just just started going, releasing good records, uh, Tushy and Mori as well. You know, um, and it's all very much of the same kind of thing. Um, and those are those are bands that I like as well. Just don't like them as much as Modern Life Is War because it's like sometimes you just kind of be the original. Um, 
I was going to say about the breakup thing is uh, Cars on the Table I've interviewed Jeffrey and Chris the guy, the singer and bass player uh, nicest guys um, I remember we couldn't find anywhere to interview them so I done it at the back of the classic grand on the stairs where, all, where everyone's smoking fags apart from me and uh, he was talking about how one of the how they regret saying they were going to break up because it was like we were just sick of being on the road all the fucking time and really feeling as though we weren't, we weren't getting anywhere and I'd run out of things to, to write about because I was on the road for so long I had no experiences left to, to, to write lyrics about mm. so I had to go away and you know live, live, some more life, life. live some more <laughs> life and, and, and come back and do this thing and even though they were playing in that show in Glasgow to very few people they can go to festivals and, and play to a lot of people who actually know them and they were saying like Chris the, the bass player in particular is a software engineer now and they're like man I can just book some holidays and go off like to Europe for two weeks and play some people and they'll, they'll know what we're doing and that's fucking cool and I can just come back home and go back to my life you know, I think it's fucking awesome, and it is, the, it and is then a testament though to the the, the the disappearance of the musical middle class because that means he's basically musical working class. Yeah, yeah, literally. Mm-hmm. So I mean that that kind of middle ground is gone. You're either massive, and doing well, sustainably, or you're doing it as a hobby on, yeah. your, on your two weeks from work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even like a pivotal band in a genre. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's one of the that's another reason why I, I wanted to nominate them first because like they are. They're but not then, even full time band. Anymore. Yeah, they're not even full time band. But then bands that they have heavily and clearly influenced, like Touche Mori and mm-hmm. all those bands, are full time and you know touring the world and probably doing all right. Definitely doing all right, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we talk about the records. Yeah, let's talk about the records. Um, so that one of the things that you probably What's the deal with the hell is for heroes thing. I don't know. Um, it, so the first track's called the Outsiders, but then it's got this kind of subtitle of Hell is for Heroes Part One. Yeah, and then the the second. The last song has also got Hells for Heroes part two. Part two. Um, and it, see, this kicks off, and I, I was like, "The oh, name of a film, you know that, right?" I don't know if I did know that. Actually. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a war film from uh, Vietnam. Oh, it joins up at least three dots. Then mm. uh, the intro of this, I was a bit like, "Ah, oh, fuck, here we go." I think the intro is a perfect example of it being overly earnest and overly clunky, and sort of like, "Oh, yeah, okay, we get it." feels really generic um, I get that it's a genre thing I get that that's part that tropiness is part of melodic hardcore but I was just rolling my eyes like a motherfucker although I think it's about 1 minute 30 1 minute 35 there's a really good dissonant guitar part mm-hmm. that comes in and kind of like takes it up a level into something really quite interesting I think and the production is good. You, they're oh, yeah, like, I mean, they're, the, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've talked about that, but it's like can't really fault it. Yeah, it sounds big, and you know yeah. they've got those big, expansive like open chords and it's also nice really tones. It's raw without sounding like shit as well. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah, it, it yeah. feels like a band being captured right, in, like right in the studio doing. Yeah, that Yeah, they're thing. like right. We've got guitar one, guitar two, bass, vocals, drums. We're going to make each of those things sound as good as they can, but it's going to be heavy. Mm-hmm. I like I like the intro because it's like winding up the coils, winding up the spring. You can feel the tension kind of being pent up, you know. And and I think it knows its market. Mm. I think it knows who's going to be listening to it, and it knows what they expect, and it knows that there's a kind of contract that's like this is well, a, you want us to provide this. Yeah, to and you. they're a live band as well, so it's like they could def you could definitely imagine this being the intro music to the first circle pit of the 
the tour yeah whereas by contrast the first track on the album after this is so much more interesting so uh, much more yeah. like whoa I didn't expect that I, I completely disagree with that because nobody was doing anything like this at the time so this is like completely fertile ground for them and so it's their fault the genre like it well, could be yeah that is it like this is 2005 you've got to remember this has been done so many times since, since. But yeah, they were definitely one of the first and people to come out now and just like, like be all those so complaints. straightforward at doing it. Yeah, and we've just spoken about how like the My Love My Way like sounds completely not completely different, but it's a lot more straight a lot straight up hardcore Bane style. This is like bringing in that emo influence, which nobody was really doing, which is another reason why I brought this in because like if this is like a foundational text for a kind of music which is yeah so rote now. You yeah, know? and I think it's interesting that you go, oh, it's cliched, but. It wasn't cliched at the time. It comes, I think, and that's, and that's a sign from, of yeah. its influence. Um, well, I guess in the in the interest of ultra earnestness as well, Martin Atchett, yeah, second from, from from the book Skin, yeah, yeah, it's graphic na- novel, a thalidomide skinhead mm-hmm. boy, true mm-hmm. story. Yeah. I haven't read the graphic novel, but chorus has got a really nice guitar bit in it. Yeah, I, it reminded me of actually Alexis on Fire guitar, like that. Mm. It's a nice bit. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of yeah. panned to one side. It's uh-huh. kind of pretty. As you say, it's not chunky, but it is a riff. Mm-hmm. You know, mm. it's it's like a it's like a kind of picked riff as opposed to something. That's yeah, but like I can't remember what it is. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I just know I liked it. Yeah, which I is mean, kind of my overall thing with this record is I can't remember any of it, but I would go and listen to it again. I mean, it's not freaking Alicia. It's, it's like it's <laughs> nice. I enjoy the aesthetic of it. I think it's not a concept album, but it does feel as though it tells a story, like musically, you know, like this is that. Like oh yeah, definitely. And it it's fast. It's only nine songs, 27 minutes. It flies by, but it's not like, oh, here's nine songs that are identical. There's a lot of variety in the song structures and, you know, it's got like little sort of one minute, one minute, 30 tracks that are basically just breaking it down and yeah to, to that end I think actually it's, I'm really glad they followed it with Johnny and Jimmy mm-hmm. I think it's that, that the pace of that one I thought that was one of the standout tunes on it Really en- enjoyed the fucking adrenaline. Yeah, yeah it's a bit more furious musically. That fucking flange thing just at the intro is really, <laughs> really weird. I don't know if yeah. Kurt Ballou would recommend they do that again. <laughs> like, it's, it's a bit like what pedals do we have lying about? Alright, we'll try that one. There's a really um, good example in the second verse of the guitar dynamics, like the way they play off each other and do like different non hardcore things. Such a quick yeah. song, I'm not sure what we're talking about is second verse, but there is a bit about z- like fifty five seconds into the song, mm. which is actually given the length of the song quite far into the song. Yeah. yeah. It's there's a bridge kind of bit that's brilliant. It's, yeah, that's the bit I'm talking about. Maybe yeah. The mm-hmm. best yeah, I really album. liked it. Yeah. And the octave chords and the minor keys in that song as well are so nice. Like octave chords were coming out are coming out like the old scoot the older or the other end of melodic hardcore, you know, the rise against the style stuff. The huge, huge thing which was gonna love me an octave chord. I fucking love octave chord, man. I could play them all day long. Um I am an octave chord in person. Um and then you follow it with Marshalltown. Um that's the this is something the band had never done before. Like this come this literally comes out of nowhere if you think of their career. It's a little more slower and melodic and it kinda of builds up. 
uh, but it's a nice breather, I think, after like the the see. This is the sort of song of the that I songs. think has now been done to death. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That I see so many bands do, and I've you know I've been to so many gigs where the hardcore band, and then they do this song, and it's like Defeater have done it, and Touche Murray and Have Heart, and all these bands, and I've seen Glasgow bands do it to fuck. And I'm like, oh, this does nothing for me. This is for those guys to sing along. You know yeah. what I mean? It's for those yeah. guys to like, word for word for. It's, yeah. the bit, it's just the bit that I just don't get because it's like, this is the earnest part and we're going to think about how tough things are. And then we'll do a fast bit that's interesting later, but this is slow and boring. <laughs> <laughs> and I, but I understand it. And I understand that like on this record, it, you know, it wasn't, it hadn't been done to death. Yeah, this is when I go to the bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a very brief uh, jaunt to the bar though Because then you've got <laughs> Dead Ramones or D-E-A-D-R-A-M-O-N-E-S Which is my favourite song on the record Because it's just a bop It's just a proper it, hardcore pop It's song. really upbeat yeah. Yeah, yeah, It's, it's like, upbeat and it's like Got a proper like old school hardcore mm-hmm. Fucking like Danzig uh, riff or something mm-hmm. And yeah, then I'm glad this tune's on it This was fun, I like yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. It's fucking real live as well, yeah. especially the gang at the end. It's so good. <laughs> and then Young Man comes in. Young Man on a spree. Yeah. I mean, that's a bit ominous. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting because this is like one of those tracks that's sort of really spreading the sound of the record and it, is that a song in itself or is it yeah, a, I mean, a part I mean, of an album? I think I, it's an interlude. I see it more as an interlude. I was extremely meh about this song. It never I, really arrives. It's like that. Well, I, I liked it. I, I like what it did. I think that's the point of it. I liked it. I felt anyway. Because in the context of the record, I, I kind of, I did kind of want the, the drums to free up a little bit and go a little bit jazzy because it's like, oh, this is a hardcore drummer being as uh, you know on hardcore as possible yeah. but then the I'm just like is. yeah I know exactly I, I'm like oh, just go just go off beat once but uh, I like what it did to the record in that it sort of lets it breathe a little bit it's, it's like a, I know, I it's like it a restrained like it's like they're restraining from getting to the, 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 the you know the end point which they've just done like they've just been really explosive and cathartic in the last song it's like teasing you to do that again and it doesn't happen I, I, I kind of feel like the album is 23 minutes long and they were like we need to do something else nah nah <laughs> I think it works in the in the context of the record. It kind of, I'm not ready to expand the idea of Young Man this way a little bit. It's like the same song, but also like like in cinema, you know, like it's sort of in like full color. Yeah, um, big and chunky. It's and another super earnest tune, though. Super fucking earnest. But, like if you were being the, kind to, it, you'd say it wears its heart in its sleeve. But the big, <laughs> co- that's a, big a band, isn't it? Surely, it sounds nice though. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the actual sound of it is really nice. These big open chords and. It's good at what it does. Yeah. It's corny, but it's good at what it does. Yeah. Let's, let's agree to leave it at that. <laughs> it's not, not corny. It, do, it doesn't sound like corn. No, not like corn. <laughs> That'd be weird. If only. Young, um, young Man Blues has got some good riffs in it, man.
um, probably the most riffy song on album. Yeah, it's, like, it's big and chunky. Oh, fuck, man, Ellie. Honestly, the, the title of this tune dated it so much because yeah. it's so clearly from before the kind of Me Too era of when it was no mm-hmm. longer really that that great hard to see to be a, young, a young men young talking about how hard it is being yeah. young men. Mm-hmm. You're like, it's very much of its fucking era. Yeah, I've written like, here. I'm, I'm a young man and life is hard. I, I've written here like uh, I don't really like the lyrics of this song, but it does have <laughs> some of the best riffs in the record. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> want it to be a bit faster though. I felt they were kind of holding back a little bit. Mm. It's, it's, it's decent enough. It's not. It, it, it didn't. This tune didn't blow me away. The vocal was fine as well, but um, yeah, I, I, I just I, I couldn't get past that kind of white male moping thing. Mm. And then it ends with uh, her raising accounts of restless ghosts. That's actually a good name. I don't know why you have to then tack the hell as for years. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. I don't understand why they did that either. Um, it's like I, I like this song a lot. It's a proper conclusion to the record. It's like the whole album's like a parable of living in this rural town in America, and it feels as though it's definitely like the end of that story. Um, yeah, I, th- it I think it's it's maybe a little bit ironic that given that this is melodic hardcore and kind of you know so parallel to like emotional hardcore and so inflected with clear uh, displays of male emotion I don't actually feel an emotional click with it I think like when music is this brazenly trying to appeal to your 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 emotional side and your sentiments and elicit a reaction I actually find it harder to emotionally engage with it it just it, it, it doesn't really but it's interesting I used to live with somebody for a few years that absolutely adored Modern Life is War and music like this he was just a hardcore kid yeah it was interesting just We'd go to a lot of the same shows, um, but then you know when a band like this came on, he'd be down the front and like hitting his chest, and I fucking get this, and I'd be like, at the bar, oh, <laughs> can't wait till the band with riffs comes on. <laughs> um, uh, but it's interesting, and like, yeah, it's just interesting how close we were in musical taste, but then just didn't quite one thing get that little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah, I think it's a good re- a good end to the record. I've written here some more cracking sad boy riffs. Can you spell yeah. boy B-O-I? I have spelled boy, boy yeah. B-O-I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and big octaves again. And the big chunky chords come back in doing the octave thing. But bigger. Um, and I like the way his voice kind of breaks in this song as well. And in the end. It's very emotional. Cool ending as well. I like the ending. It certainly doesn't overstay its welcome. It does not. They it's never like, they never do. Succinct, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was torn between this and the third record, but I th- like I there were much there were definitely a few more interesting parts. The touchstones of when they veer into more progressive territory and they sound a bit more like Fear Before the March of Flames or Poison the Well or Botch even 
that's when it gets more interesting to me and I like it and that definitely happens more on the third record Mm -hmm. but I also don't think the third record is nearly as consistent consistent all the way through there's definitely some really boring songs on Mm. on that whereas I think this as much as it's not a genre that I get I quite enjoyed listening to it Um, and I can see how this is the one that sort of defines them and is probably the most consistent of what it is and it's a genre touched on as well Um, yeah and they're definitely a band that are underrated and hugely influential and yeah that I think we should recognise Chris doesn't want to is so (laughs) uh, cynical about their emotions and I hope you guys remember this in future when I bring stuff to the table I don't like the album massively I think there's like two or three songs in it that are good but I like the fact that the band is there. I really acknowledge the fact that they're under-recognised and that there are names within that genre that I'm not massively familiar with that have meant a lot to a lot of people. Or even, doesn't not necessarily a lot of people, but a lot of people within that genre proportionately. And so I want to recognise that. And I, I, will, I will take your word, and from what I've read, the word of others saying that this is an outstanding album, uh, objectively, for fans of that genre. Uh, and it's probably their outstanding album and even though I do find some of their other material more interesting yeah I'll put it in because I I think it's good to represent stuff that I maybe I'm not necessarily massively invested in I've I've made my reservations about the genre abundantly clear uh, but yeah it probably still does on balance deserve to go in I mean I I like this genre a lot and the the bands that do it now bands like Defeater, bands like Tusha Mori I don't think they've even written records that come close to this. Um, they have written some really good records and stuff, don't get me wrong. But yeah, this still stands out to me as being the thing that everybody copies. They want to have They want to have this. Mm-hmm. But I think the circumstances of how this was written and what the band were like and where they were from play a huge part in their desire and drive to actually create some art in a place which was completely devoid of it. So other bands are coming out of scenes influenced by this stuff, so it's probably going to be a lot harder to actually attain such... I don't know, artistic purity, I guess, if you've got to be wanky about it. Well, Well, considering that we've uh, now talked for more than twice the length of the actual record itself, (laughs) uh, we should probably decide to put it in and then uh, do our nexus. Yeah, I mean, let's let's get fucking real on these necks, I, because I've got a peach. Uh, Are we going to do it? Who did we draw? Echo the Dolphin. Echo the Dolphin, thanks to Craig Carrick. Yeah. Um, so, so we're going from Echo the Dolphin to Modern Life as well yep. I thought it was going to be a hellish one Oh we need a jingle And it's turned into a, a beast Yeah. Who's the, this is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight Will it be the last? What do they have in this store is, for us? Not good for- Just to clarify, because I keep getting this mixed up, it's Echo to the band, not the band to Fuck Echo. Fuck off, it's band <laughs> to <laughs> Echo. Yeah, he's not got it by now, man. He's not no, I've actually written it down as the band to Echo. Like, so uh, the original guitarist in the band is a, a chap called Matt Hoffman, who plays on this record. 
He kind of he plays in what you could kind of call a punk rock super glue group. Super glue. Super <laughs> the That's way. what I feel like right now. It's twenty two <laughs> degrees in Glasgow, yeah. and I'm gloopy. Yeah, I mean they are pretty, they are pretty gloopy as well. There's a band I'm about to mention. I'm not a particularly big fan of. Um, a band called Only Crime, which features Rush Rankin from very well known skate punk band called Good Riddance and of course the former drummer of Black Flag Bill Stevenson who's also a producer fuck me man you've mentioned that guy in at least 50% of our episodes yeah every single Modic Hardcore <laughs> record comes back to, it should be the Bill Stevenson next really when it comes to Modic Hardcore records um, Bill Stevenson briefly played drums in the Lemonheads is that uh, true? Yeah, he played, he no played drums on their 2006 self-titled record. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. In 2009 which is the record the record after their self-titled album they uh, Mr. Dando, Evan Dando, um, he had recorded a cover album called Varsians, um, and Liv Tyler performs on the album doing vocals on the Leonard Cohen cover of Hey, That's No Way to Say Goodbye. She's the daughter of Stephen Tyler, whose birth name is Stephen Victor Tallarico. Uh, Stephen is a cousin of a video game composer called Tommy Tallarico. It's oh, oh, oh. <laughs> a good nexus. Um, and he was responsible for the soundtrack of the 2006 game Jaws Unleashed. <laughs> Which was the final game produced by the studio Appaloosa Interactive, the studio who used to be called Novo Trade Inter- International, and that studio produced Echo the Dolphin. That's good. That is very impressive. That's really good. Whose homework did you steal for that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thank you. Uh, yeah, so I'll go next. Uh, so Modern Life is War are uh, very related to uh, Jacob Bannon of Converge. He uh, signed them to his record label and designed a couple of their album covers. He has also designed artwork for fucking loads of bands. Apparently he did some artwork for Sepultura. I didn't know that. Can't believe that. But he also did some stuff for uh, Give Up the Ghost. Uh, oh, I fucking are, love that band. <laughs> uh, also known as American Nightmare. It used to be called American Nightmare, yeah. And they get sued. Uh, who did they get sued by? A band called American Nightmare. Uh, yeah, I was going <laughs> to guess that as well. Uh, fair play. <laughs> Um, so they, aye, they were like a hardcore punk band from uh, Boston, mm-hmm. uh, who at one point featured a Mr. Frank Iero. Is that how you pronounce Frank his Iero. name? Frank yeah. Iero. Uh, Frank Iero, uh, more famously known as the uh, guitarist in My Chemical Romance. Mm-hmm. My Chemical Romance, their track was the opening uh, song on the official soundtrack to Watchmen, the whatever, 2000... The film. Yeah, the film... The Bob Dylan cover of Desolation Row. Oh, well, there you are. They mm-hmm. covered Bob Dylan, Desolation Row, and Zack Snyder's... Uh, Excellent graphic novel adaptation. Yeah, horrible <laughs> graphic, graphic See, novel adaptation. A uh, <laughs> film that divides uh, the critics and audiences alike from 2009. Uh, but it's also the film that Alan Moore, um, the writer and, you know, original uh, comic book writer of said, right, no more, stop making my films because you keep fucking them up. Mm-hmm. Um, He's actually just retired from comic books as of last week. Uh, yes, indeed. So, uh, I mean, Alan Moore, Ed Moore um, English writer, very, very famous. He did V for Vendetta as well, Swamp Thing. Uh, I mean, to be fair, hell, V for Vendetta, the film is abysmal. Yeah. It's not very good, is it? Uh, now, Alan Moore was one of several... Uh, professional creators who encouraged a person uh, to get into comic book writing uh, this guy's name was Lou Stringer, um, he's a freelance comic artist and scriptwriter who says that in the early 70s he used to do a series of fanzines featuring his popular Brickman character 
And uh, yeah, Alan Moore was amongst the professionals who said that he should carry on. Uh, Lou Stringer uh, later went on to be uh, part of the core creative writing team uh, for Sonic the Comic. Oh, oh wow. The UK-based uh, comic book in the sort of 1993 to 2002 it was published. So there was a Sonic Holy the Hedgehog a comic book that was based in America that was like way more graphic novelly, but this was like a sort of Beano stroke dandy type of you know kids comic. Mm-hmm. Did it have disturbing teeth? Uh, no, do you know what? It just it looked like Sonic. Did, um, did you see that? Like the audience mm-hmm. testing on the Sonic film is not being good because he's got human teeth. I uh, I mean <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I mean uh, the film looks really really terrible. <laughs> not as bad as cats. No. <laughs> Uh, Now, of course, um, when Sonic the Comic started out, uh, it was mostly Sonic the Hedgehog, but in uh, two different series, there were spin-offs, including one of Echo the Dolphin. That's mental. Wow. A fellow Sega Mega Drive game. Wow. That's pretty good. I am truly impressed that we managed to avoid going down even vaguely related routes. Yeah. But honestly, I've got a fucking monster here, right? And I'm going to try and talk fast because I don't want this to be a, a long episode, but I've, I've excelled myself in this one, right? So Modern Life is War are from Marshalltown, Iowa, not Ohio. Not Ohio. <laughs> which actually uh, currently apparently only has a population of 23,300. Oh, Weirdly though... It actually has a lot of like quite famous alumni from it for such a small town. Mm. Admittedly, no other musicians. Almost went down that route, but I did not. But one of them is the actress Jean Seberg, who I've actually spoken about at length on a Nexus before. Jean Seberg's a fascinating figure. I, I, one of the most touching stories I've ever read, actually. Uh, an iconic actress uh, from a film called Breathless, uh, released in 1960, as well as that famous uh, cowboy film Paint Your Wagon. Um, so Jean Seberg was the subject of uh, an FBI COINTELPRO investigation. Uh, long story short, she, alongside a bunch of donations she'd made to the Meskwaki Bucks, I think it's pronounced, which is like a Native American baseball team uh, based near Marshalltown. Mm-hmm. She was like a, a she was a big benefactor of like different groups and stuff. She bought them like $500 worth of baseball jerseys and stuff. But when they were investigating her payments and contributions, they found some like 10 grand plus of contributions to the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 1970, the FBI actually planted a false story about Gene Seberg via an informant of theirs um, that the unborn baby she was carrying at the time was not in fact, her husband's, it was a result of an affair with a guy called Raymond Hewitt, who was one of the, it was really high up in the Black Panthers. And the Black Panthers was, f- for white Americans, certainly in the 1960s, a domestic terrorist mm-hmm. organization, you know. Um, and what actually happened was that Gene Seberg went into labor really, really early and the child died two days after it was born. Oh. Um, and there was a court case because she alleged that it was the result of like the stress and the grief and the kind of turmoil uh, brought about by this allegation which was basically just made as a kind of revenge strike against her for supporting the Black Panthers. In subsequent years um, it really affected her marriage and stuff and she ended up moving away and getting hooked up with somebody else who then abused her really badly. Uh, she moved away to Paris but even when she was in Paris her friends had said that she said she was stalked and wiretapped. Her apartments were repeatedly broken into and years later an investigation by a paper, I can't remember what paper it is, discovered that this was in fact true. They found records 
that the FBI had of phone conversations, even when she was abroad, they found evidence of like the, the, the break-ins being deliberate to try and harass her. Uh, her ex-husband said that Jean Seberg had a, a history of suicide attempts and she used to actually attempt suicide many times on the anniversary of her child's death. Uh, and at the age of 40, she was finally found dead in Paris in the back of a car only a few days after, um, well, she'd gone missing, sorry, a few days after the anniversary of our child's death. Um, so a really, really sad, really tragic story. And one of those stories that shows you why the FBI used to be seen as such a an ominous and secretive and shady uh, organisation. Um, the FBI also had an investigation file on Mr. Carl Sagan, or relating to Mr. Carl Sagan, uh, due to a 1938 letter that he was sent by somebody calling themselves uh, M. Springfield. Mm. Um, and in this letter... It claimed that Carl Sagan was one of the only people that could prevent the apocalypse and it was all to do with the, the onset of World War Three. But in the letter, the person, Mr Springfield, predicted a number of things, one of which included a Columbia shuttle disaster and they kind of went into detail saying it would be brought about by a fuel leak. Now the FBI interpreted that as actually as a bomb threat mm. and so they, they started investigating it. They they tracked down this Mr Springfield whose wife actually said, no, he, he's been dead for 10 years so whoever it was wasn't was using an assumed identity. The crazy thing is that twenty years after that, the Columbia the shuttle disaster did in fact come to pass. Um, so it was a really weird detail. Yeah. So Carl Sagan, who was involved in that investigation, another writer called James Gunn claims that Carl Sagan once confided to him that James Gunn's book, uh, The Listeners, was in fact the main inspiration for Carl Sagan's famous book, Contact. Uh, the listeners was actually voted as an unrecognised classic by New Scientist. Not so long ago, they assembled a panel of people to talk about great overlooked works of literature. So there you go, Unsung Podcast. Unsung um, Books. The Listeners by mm-hmm. James Gunn is apparently a really amazing book talking about alien contact. Bear with me here. The Listeners in it mentions uh, a group called The Order of the Dolphin, right? Uh, and a guy, a, I very, going with this. a very key figure here called John C. Lilly, all right? Uh, and it mentions them as pioneers and champions of like research into like interspecies communication. Now, John C. Lilly was a neuroscientist and a psychonaut, uh, basically a, a druggie. An adventurer. An adventurer of the psyche, yeah, acid, yes. alongside guys like Timothy Leary, yeah. who was actually photo- photographed alongside. Uh, John C. Lilly uh, obtained funding from NASA to research communication with dolphins as a kind of precursor, as a template to how humans might communicate with alien life. If we ever encountered that, you know, if we could learn to communicate with dolphins. As uh, being the dolphins in that context. But, well, yeah, yeah, very possibly. Um, as part of that research, and when the money was forthcoming, uh, John C. Lilly bought a house, a really old house in the, in the coast in the Caribbean, and he flooded it. He flooded the inside of the house, like including the different levels. So the house was all sealed and the floor was all sealed, and then they just flooded all the hallways in the house so that the dolphins could swim around the house and they had like an elevator and stuff that would let them go up and down and <laughs> it's crazy but that enabled the, the researchers to try and bond with the dolphins um, and there were like two female dolphins that were mainly kept downstairs in the house and then there was one upstairs called Peter Right, a young woman called Margaret Lovett heard about this uh, research that was going on and she volunteered, she, she travelled to the house in the Caribbean after reading about it and volunteered to help and Margaret ended up working really closely with the male dolphin Peter uh, and the objective was to try and teach these dolphins to speak English via their blowhole. Now that sounds fucking barmy. I get it. I get it. it sounds fucking barmy. 
but they had surprisingly good results, okay? There's a BBC documentary called The Girl Who Talked to Dolphins, um, and I'm going to drop in a clip of her talking to a dolphin and the dolphin talking back. Hello. fucking incredible like mental now obviously it's just imitating sounds but it is mental that that dolphin is like counting along with her there it's crazy um now there was also other stuff to do with that so she worked exclusively with this dolphin peter <laughs> this dolphin peter was very uh, disinterested in the two other female dolphins and very interested in uh, Margaret Lovett. Yeah, dolphins are a bit rapey. Yeah, and so famously, she, in order to get the dolphin to focus on the experiments and stuff, they had to, like, basically jack the dolphin off. And this led to the magazine Hustler doing a feature, like an interspecies sex feature oh on Margaret God. Lovett, which was, like, really fucking detrimental to her career as somebody that was trying to get into science from that point. And what yeah, yeah, I've read about um, that. But uh, anyway, so as the funding for that project was reduced though um, John C. Lilly got like increasingly desperate to get results before they were shut down and started to perform more and more radical experiments in the dolphins including using like neural probes and uh, using like pneumatic drills at the side of their tanks and stuff like that to try and disorientate them because of their echolocation and even injecting them at one point with LSD um, and when the funding stopped altogether he actually moved the whole project back, I think, I don't know if it was back to the United States, I think it might have been, to this new facility, and the new facility was not nice. So the dolphins had apparently had a really pleasant lifestyle at the Caribbean facility. At this new facility, they were in tanks, suspended, you know, with water being sort of like pumped past them, but they were just miserable and maltreated, and it was really, really traumatic for the dolphins, so much so, and Peter, the dolphin, missed Margaret so much so, that he did something that apparently dolphins... Uh, have been observed doing a number of times he committed suicide it inhaled the water and then sunk to the bottom and allowed himself to drown and apparently this is a behaviour that's been noted in dolphins by researchers before I can't believe you managed to get human and dolphin suicide into this nexus Jesus Christ <laughs> Mate, we're not even done I'm sorry I'm trying to hurry up um, to, <clears throat> to be fair to him John C. Lilly in later years did as much as he possibly could to try and make up for that period of his life. He was deeply ashamed of it. He went on massive like speaking tours to talk about it, to talk about the corrupting influences of the, the drugs and the money. And he then has spent decades, or he's dead now, but he spent decades campaigning for, you know, different, um, I don't say rights, but the treatment of animals like dolphins so they can't be kept in captivity in smaller than certain areas and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of that's down to him trying to make up for this horrible shit that he did at this period of the research. Um, he, after the dolphin stuff, he went on to experiment with ketamine because he had really bad migraines. Of course and he, he did. He said when he took the ketamine, he felt the migraine leaving his body. He used to call it vitamin K. Um, <laughs> and he also used isolation tanks. So he would get loaded up on vitamin K, as he put it, and then get into isolation tanks. He actually drowned once and his wife had to resuscitate him because he was so baked inside this thing. Uh, and while he was in those tanks, he had intense hallucinations under the influence uh, and believed he was being contacted by omnipotent aliens that controlled everything on Earth. And they were called the Earth Coincidence Control Office. Earth Coincidence Control Office. Echo. Mm. Right? 
Also, he apparently believed during one of those trips that the aliens had cut off his penis and he, he started screaming and his wife ran in and he, cl- he thought he was holding his penis out to her and she was like, it's hanging off you. What are you doing? It's still mm. attached. And he's like, no, it's here in my hand. Anyway. Uh, um, Echo is also the abbreviation for echolocation, isn't it? ACCO. Oh, that'd be ECHO. No, but, but the ECCO is like an abbreviation for something related to dolphins as well. Yeah, well, the, yeah. the reason... The Echo the Dolphin was called Echo though is because Echo the Dolphin's creator, a guy called Ed Annunziata, uh, was a huge uh, fan of John C. Lilly's writing mm-hmm. and said that it was John C. Lilly's writing, including the stuff about the Earth Coincidence Control Office and all the dolphins and all the alien fucking dialogue that originally uh, inspired Echo the Dolphin. And that's why in the game, uh, it gets really fucked up and like aliens get involved and there's like a giant head thing and Echo get, gets like abducted up into an alien craft and stuff through water in midair and it's all based on this fucking lunatic stuff so there you go dolphins, drugs, aliens that's mental Bosh. well there you are uh, Craig we I mean <laughs> I think it's fair to say that's us even <laughs> that, ne- that is truly fucking nexus was, uh, was that nexus longer than the album uh, yeah I think that, that nexus was longer sorry, than modern man. life as well like, see once I started I was like I need to see this through because it's amazing alright Chris grab the grab the hat that was deep alright so next week well we're going to have to do a nexus but we're also going to have to do an album yeah and it's my turn to choose an album and we're going to do something very different Okay, uh, we're going to do something weird. We're going to talk about hipsters and why. That's a coming for you. That's and so strange. We're also going to talk about bands that are good in the studio but not so good live. <laughs> I've already did Sonic Youth. Yeah, we're going to do uh, Salem with uh, King Knight, uh, which is uh, wow. was seen as cool as fuck when it came out by all the hipsters, but then it's kind of been forgotten and then. Uh, yeah, we'll reappraise it. That's yeah, what we'll do. So we'll fickle, reappraise it. Uh, so David, uh, so we need to we've pull got somebody out the hat, though. Yeah, we've got the Nexus hat, and we're gonna have to connect I've Salem. Added, uh, I've added uh, the new names. Okay, in cool. There as well, uh, let me do some rumbling. We're gonna have to connect Salem to Salem, the witchy hipster band, the witch house band, to Kilgore Trout. Uh, and that is uh, Morna Cannon Morna um, Cannon Kilgore Trout from uh, Slaughter no uh, from Breakfast of Champions or is it Slaughterhouse 5 yeah he's a catalyst for the main characters in Slaughterhouse 5 Breakfast of Champions God bless you Mr Rosewater brilliant okay uh, Kurt Vonnegut uh, staple then yeah awesome uh, yeah so that'll be fun thanks Morna Vonnegut busy that's a nice um, highbrow one yeah, yeah totally after Echo the Dolphin <laughs> I'll maybe go the opposite direction. I'll try and be as stupid as possible with that one. Yeah. And brief. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Uh, well, uh, thanks, guys. Um, yeah, thank you. Go and vote. Uh, also, give us money. Oh, yeah. Just Please, yeah, we could really we could really use a wee bit of investment. Um, and uh, join us next week when the world will continue spiraling out of control into a pit of absurdity. Um, who knows what else will have happened? Yay. Bye. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. 
Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.